Welcome back to Spoiler Free Wrestling, the podcast. And I'm your host, Ian Carey, and we are talking all the news that has been making the headlines in the world of pro wrestling this week. And for what seems like the third or fourth week in a row, the main news, the, the, the top story in the world of wrestling is something very uncomfortable. It's something very difficult to cover. And in the last few months, it seems like that's all we've gotten. We've got an ongoing global pandemic and how that impacts the pro wrestling industry. We've been dealing with how in, uh, issues concerning police killings and brutality and racism and, and how that impacts the pro wrestling industry. We've been dealing with tragedy. We've seen the tragic deaths of Shad Gaspard and Hana Kimura recently. And now, and now there's another fairly uncomfortable topic that is dominating headlines in the wrestling world these days. And that's the, the speaking out hashtag. And for those that haven't been following this, in the last few days, there has been numerous wrestlers involved primarily in the UK or European indie scene, but also this has trickled over to North American wrestling as well. Numerous wrestlers have been outing or alleging sexual misconduct or assault or bullying from other wrestlers. And the amount of accusations that are out there is mind-boggling or mind bottling, as Will Ferrell would say, like when your mind gets all trapped like it's inside a bottle. So many accusations that it really wouldn't be fair to anyone to go over the individual allegations from each person or impacting each person. So instead, in order to cover this in what I believe is a responsible manner, we'll talk about cases where there has been some type of ramification. There's been a response from a wrestling promotion or somebody has issued a statement through their legal team or something along those lines. And so the first person who experienced ramifications, I guess, from the, the speaking out movement is David Starr. And many of you won't really be all that familiar with David Starr, but he's a fairly big deal in the European scene. He's never really, to my knowledge, wrestled for a, a top promotion in North America or in Japan. But for promotions like Progress, David Starr was a big deal. But numerous allegations were made against David Starr suggesting sexual misconduct on his behalf. He sort of released a statement denying some of the charges, but admitting to maybe not being all that great of a partner to some of the people that he's been with, and then he took his social media private. So where David Starr's wrestling career goes from here, if his wrestling career even has a future, is not really certain. So David Starr, he was the first one to experience ramifications Several promotions have severed ties with him, including Progress. Including, I believe, OTT did as well. So, so many of the top promotions that he performed for in Europe now 
are saying he's gone and they'll have nothing to do with him. And then WWE's Jack Gallagher, who had been with the company since 2016, primarily as part of the cruiserweight division, although I think he also competed a little bit on the NXT UK brand, he has also been released from WWE. Now, WWE sent out some statements to media recently clarifying their position, their their policies on what they do if someone on their roster is uh, suggested to have engaged in, in sexual misconduct, assault, or, or uh, a similar offense. So when accusations started to come out, first they came out about Jordan Devlin, and later they would come out about other wrestlers. And when any dirt sheet or media outlet contacted WWE, they were sent the same blanket response. Basically, anything to do with sexual assault, domestic abuse, they have a zero tolerance policy for, and they're aware of the reports and they're investigating the manner. However, later in the day, they would send out a, a far more detailed statement on what their policy really is. And so here is what that policy reads. So it says, individuals are responsible for their own personal actions. WWE has, a zero has zero tolerance for matters involving domestic violence, child abuse, and sexual assault. Upon arrest for such misconduct, a WWE talent will be immediately suspended. Upon conviction for such misconduct, a WWE talent will be immediately terminated. However, they would continue to say that if presented with irrefutable evidence that a member of their roster is guilty of these offenses, they can terminate this wrestler without an arrest or conviction. So that's their, that's their policy. Now, several of the wrestlers have been accused of sexual misconduct, but unlike Jack Gallagher, they weren't released. So we're going to see if we can figure out maybe what was the difference between Jack Gallagher and the rest of them. So Matt Riddle was accused online of, um, sexual misconduct by a woman on Twitter. Now he later in the day would post a letter from his attorney. And this letter reads the allegations by this independent female performer are completely false. And another attempt to harass and humiliate Mr. And Mrs. Riddle and to try to tarnish their reputation in the community. We have been aware for the last two years of this performer stalking the Riddle family. In 2019, our firm had drafted a pleading against this performer to seek an injunction for cyber stalking in the circuit court for Orange County, Florida. So Riddle has had legal problems with his accuser dating back two years. I've also heard WWE or some in WWE were already aware of this, that, uh, that this is an issue. He's got someone stalking him online and it feels very much like this will probably WWE is probably not going to take any further action against Matt Riddle. I don't, well, they haven't taken any action against Matt Riddle. And it does seem as though some of these WWE wrestlers who have released statements in the wake of this speaking out movement, that there will be legal action taken on their behalf against the accusers for defamation. And I say this because a lot of the statements online that were accusing wrestlers associated with WWE are disappearing. 
Twitter accounts have been taken private. Tweets have been deleted. That kind of thing. It does sound very much to me like Matt Riddle and his attorneys are looking into some type of legal action uh, against his accuser. And by the sounds of it, they had taken some legal action against his accuser last year. So predating these accusations. Now, Jordan Devlin and Liguero from NXT UK were also accused of various charges of either assault or sexual misconduct. Both are denying the charges. And WWE has not released them either. Although in in the case of Jordan Devlin and Matt Riddle and probably Liguero too, media did contact WWE and WWE said that they are looking into the matter. So Jordan Devlin released the following statement on Twitter in regards to his situation. And this is what Jordan Devlin said. I didn't even want to address the hurtful allegation made against me, but for the sake of my followers and friends on this platform that may, for whatever reason, be unsure, I'm going to address this once. The recent allegation made against me is completely and utterly false, and I deny it entirely. This is a case of malicious personal agenda being executed against me on the back of a very brave telling of true experiences by other women. I completely denounce it. This is all I will say on the matter, and I am now working with a legal team to help decide how to proceed from here. So that's Jordan Devlin's statement. And again, in it, he says, I'm working with the legal team to determine how to, how to move forward. Now, Liguero released a statement as well. He also indicated that he's working with the legal team on, on how to move forward. So Liguero writes, the current story that has been rele- released by, and I'm going to redact the names here, is neither accurate nor true. This is a completely false allegation, and whilst I've done other things in my life that I deeply regret, this isn't an accurate or truthful portrayal of events. I like that he he included the word whilst in his official statement. Uh, He continues, this is something I strongly deny and is something I've been in the process of speaking to a legal team about. Okay, and there were some other WWE wrestlers um, that also put out statements saying, hey, I'm working into a legal team. In one case, like Trent Seven put out a statement I can't find hide nor hair of anyone accusing Trent Seven of anything online. Maybe he just decided I'm going to get out ahead of things here and, and put out a statement. So so what's the difference then between Matt Riddle, Jordan Devil, Devlin, Liguero, and Jack Gallagher? Three wrestlers accused. They're just under investigation at this point, not released. Jack Gallagher, he is released. Jack Gallagher never released a statement saying that he's working with a legal team. I'm ju- this is just speculation, but I'm wondering if that's the difference. I'm wondering if the difference is the people that are pursuing defamation ca- uh, cases against their accusers, they stay. Anyone not, they go. I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. AEW's Jimmy Havoc was another person who was accused online as part of the speaking out movement and AEW has announced that Jimmy Havoc will be undergoing treatment, undergoing a rehabilitation program for substance abuse and mental health. And so here's what AEW wrote in their statement about Jimmy Havoc. They wrote, we wish Jimmy Havoc all the best as he receives treatment and counseling in an effort to overcome the mental health and substance abuse challenges in his life. We are aware of the various reports related to Jimmy. 
We are evaluating his status with our company, and we will address it when he has successfully completed his rehabilitation. So Jimmy Havoc, he's going to rehab, and then AEW is going to address his future with the company. Various Impact Wrestling stars were accused of various offenses online as well. So Anthem Sports and Entertainment, which is Impact Wrestling's parent company, released the following statement to media. They said, it is a core value of the Anthem organization that we conduct our business with respect and integrity, providing a safe and secure work environment for our employees and performers. We are following carefully the various allegations being made through social media and are reviewing all incidents involving Impact Wrestling talent and personnel to determine an appropriate course of action. All right. So I don't, like, again, I don't really want to go over the individual allegations against each person. There's just so many allegations out there that I feel it would almost be irresponsible to just kind of quickly gloss through and run down some of the main ones. If you follow the speaking out hashtag on Twitter, you can really do a deep dive and read them all. But like I said, the amount of accusations being made, I mean, that does point to a cultural problem. And something that that needs to be addressed. And it also hit the National Wrestling Alliance. It hit the National Wrestling Alliance fairly hard. Because the National Wrestling Alliance put out a statement regarding uh, their vice president. I guess that was his role. Dave Lagana. So here's what they said on Twitter regarding Dave Lagana. Pursuant to allegations made by pro wrestler Liz Savage on her Twitter account, NWA VP David Lagana has resigned his position effective immediately. As well, all production of NWA content is temporarily halted pending a restructuring of executive management positions. All right, so this is not good for the NWA. So the NWA, I mean, what a difference a year makes. Because if you go before the pandemic to the long, long ago, when none of us had to worry about wearing masks or social distancing, remember the before time? Do you remember the before time? Okay, so in the before time, NWA was on a roll. They were building momentum. They had the respect of fans, like the people that were watching NWA really liked the show. I really liked the show. It was fun. It was a different take on pro wrestling. It it wasn't as old school as everyone maybe says. I mean, the wrestling wasn't as old old school as maybe some people say it was, but it was it was all sort of put together in sort of this old school template, this old school feeling show. I mean, the show felt like an NWA show from the 80s. And I think a lot of people like that. And I think a lot of people like their roster. The matches had stories that were very easy to follow. And it was a different take on pro wrestling. And it was clearly like what, like Billy Corgan wanted to see this type of wrestling. Or there was uh, people involved in the production of NWA that wanted to see it done in this way. And it was this cool 
thing that you could only get in, in 2019, 2020 wrestling, where you could take your promotion and, and go off on a completely different angle with it. Because wrestling fans have so many different promotions to follow, you can kind of create a niche. Instead of trying to appeal to the broad wrestling fan, like we've seen so many promotions do, like TNA when they were the only alternative many people had to WWE. TNA was, they weren't really a different take on pro wrestling. They were just WWE light or diet WWE. But now, now you can have a promotion that says, okay, we're going to really appeal to the old school fans, or we're really going to appeal to the new school fans that want like cinematic matches and comedy and intergender wrestling and that kind of stuff. So you, you know, like I really see that impact wrestling today does a lot of like cinematic stuff, intergender stuff. Like they really appeal to the, to the new fan and NWA in many ways, like appeals to the old school fan, even, and I'm not talking like age wise either, because there's a lot of younger fans who prefer NWA's approach and a lot of older fans who uh, approve or prefer impacts approach. So it's, it's not necessarily an age thing. It's just what kind of fan are you? But now in 2020, a few months into the pandemic, and the NWA is on total hiatus. There's no empty arena shows being produced by the NWA. I don't really think they've got the financial backing to survive a pandemic without going on hiatus. And Bill Cor Billy Corgan has mentioned this. Like Billy Corgan has rock star money. And that's a lot of money. That's more money than I have, probably more money than you have, but it's not billionaire money. And other companies are owned by billionaires. Vince McMahon. Although, I, is Vince McMahon a billionaire still? Well, they're either owned by billionaires or people close to billionaires. So Vince McMahon. Anthem Sports and Entertainment is very rich. Um, you know, Ring of Honor's parent company has, has deep pockets. So Billy Corgan, despite how many copies of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness that he has sold throughout his rock star career... I mean, that's just not enough money to be solely funding a wrestling company to stay active during a global pandemic when you don't have a lot of money coming in. So basically all they had once shows stopped was Dave Lagana producing these little mini documentaries, these shows where NWA wrestlers are on YouTube watching old matches. All of that is now just stopped. Because... They've had to cut ties with Dave Lagana as a result of allegations against him. And so now the NWA is just doing nothing until Billy Corgan can take time away from his work with Smashing Pumpkins to bring in somebody else to do this. And on top of this, we're still dealing with a global pandemic where the idea of putting on live shows just isn't there. And a lot of their roster can't supplement their NWA income with doing independent shows because they aren't there either. And it could be a while. It could be a while till independent shows are really back. Like I know some scattered ones are starting to come in some areas, but these events are happening at like 20% building capacity, 33% building capacity. It'd be very difficult to turn a profit when you're barely filling up the arena. That's that's now what the wrestling 
landscape is. And so the NWA is not going to be able to hold on to their talent. Any one of them that wants to land a deal with AEW, WWE, I mean, they're going to go. And I don't like, I don't think NWA had their talent locked up to contracts that would really prevent them from going to AEW or other promotions either, but all the same. So what comes next for the NWA? I have no idea. I have no idea. It could be a long time before we hear from the NWA again. I mean, it might not be. Billy Corgan might just turn around and have somebody else for this role immediately, but it feels like NWA fans are going to be waiting a little bit longer for the promotion to come back. All right, the next thing I wanted to talk about was I wanted to talk about WWE Raw this week. And the reason I wanted to talk about it is because this was the first episode of WWE Raw where Bruce Prichard was in charge and Paul Heyman was out. We talked a lot about Paul Heyman's departure last week, but this week we really got an idea of how the show is going to be different. And this show was very different. And just in the ratings, this show actually gained about 200,000 more viewers than it had been getting. So fans knew that this was going to be a significant Raw, and they tuned in. And they stayed tuned in, I think mainly because a lot of fans wanted to know if Christian was actually going to wrestle. But before we get to Christian, here are some of the main differences you may have noticed about Raw this week with Bruce Prichard in charge rather than Paul Heyman. First of all, Paul Heyman was doing a lot of like 20 or 30 minute matches. And I think the feeling was that long matches on TV with multiple commercial breaks are death for ratings because they didn't do any of that on Raw. I mean, they did recently do like a 40-minute AJ Styles, Daniel Bryan match on SmackDown. But there appears to be a world of difference between doing like a 30, 40-minute match on a two-hour SmackDown versus doing it on a three-hour Raw. Like Raw already feels challenging to get through because of its length. And then a 30 or 40-minute match might just be a little bit too much for some fans. So there there was no 30 or 40 minute matches and everything seemed very driven by storylines and talking. There was far more talking backstage segments and things of that nature on this week's Raw than they ever had with Paul Heyman. There was also a bunch of wrestlers that notably were not there. There was no Aleister Black this week. On a three-hour show, there was just no time for Aleister Black. Shayna Baszler has been gone from Raw for some time. It's a three-hour show, no time for Shayna Baszler. No Ricochet, no Cedric Alexander. All these people that that Paul Heyman really wanted to push into top stars, they weren't the focus of the show. The focus of the show was Christian and Randy Orton, and for a little bit, Ric Flair. Ric Flair was even out there in in the main event. And so what the feeling was is that when Paul Heyman took over Raw, he wanted to create new stars. And you could tell by the way he was booking that he wanted to turn Ricochet into a star. He wanted to turn Aleister Black into a star. He wanted to turn Shayna Baszler into this big dominating heel. 
And all of those names I just mentioned were off the show on Monday. Instead, it was a show very much focused on Randy Orton and, and Christian. Names that have been around for two decades. So it seemed like the main thing that they want to move away from on Raw now is creating new stars. They want to keep the stars that they have in that position. Well, I mean, I guess Christian, technically, since he's been gone for so long. But if you're looking for, diff for what's going to be different with Bruce Pritchard running Raw as opposed to Paul Heyman, the main ones are no long matches, and you're not going to get these young stars who haven't built up their names yet pushed into top positions. At least not for right now. But the main angle that took place on Raw needs some addressing. So Randy Orton defeated Edge in the greatest wrestling match of all time. And then Christian comes out and Orton basically threatens Christian into an unsanctioned match. And because Christian's had injury problems with concussions, I mean, he can't get cleared, right? So Orton's idea is, oh, well, just this is an unsanctioned match. So it's fine. You can take part in this match. And so as soon as there's this idea that Randy Orton and Christian are going to wrestle in an unsanctioned match, that gets everybody going, is Christian going to wrestle? Like, Christian hasn't wrestled in years. And when, and after Edge announced that he was coming out of retirement, Christian was asked repeatedly if he's coming out of retirement too. And he was on Booker T's podcast and he said, basically, I just don't know how that could happen. And I'm not counting on it. And he was very much saying, this ain't happening. Okay, so, so it's not happening, right? Well, the problem is Edge said some very similar things before he came back at the Royal Rumble. So, I don't think we can trust Christian. Just like we, we learned we couldn't trust Edge when asked about these things. And if you watch, there was like a 24 or some documentary that was on Edge's comeback on the WWE Network. And he more or less said, like, I, I needed it to be a surprise. It was more important for him, for his return to be a surprise than to be honest with the media. And you know what? I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine with that. And Christian has said similar things. And now all of a sudden, Christian's getting physically involved in angles. So is Christian coming back? If you want my opinion, yes. I believe Christian is coming back and will wrestle a match. And I say this because at the end of the night, so Christian comes out, we think we're going to get an unsanctioned match between Christian and Randy Orton. Christian's not dressed to wrestle. And if you were like me, you were just watching this whole thing going like, is he going to do it? Is he going to wrestle? Can he wrestle? I mean, his issue was concussions, right? Like, it seems like it would be a bigger, like, you know, obviously Daniel Bryan was at one point medically disqualified because of concussions. And, and, and he eventually got cleared as well. And what Daniel Bryan had sort of said was, hey, I was being medically disqualified from WWE's doctors, but I had other doctors saying I was okay. Maybe it's the same situation with Christian. 
And Daniel Bryan eventually said, like, look, when my contract's up with WWE, if I'm, I'm not going to be allowed to wrestle, I'm going to go somewhere else. And that kind of forced WWE's hand, and all of a sudden, he wasn't medically disqualified from competing anymore. Daniel Bryan's resumed his career, won the WWE Championship, done a lot of cool stuff since. Maybe it was a case of Christian saying, look, my doctors will clear me. If you're not going to let me wrestle, I'm going to go wrestle for somebody else. Now, Christian didn't get too involved physically, but he did get involved physically enough that I can't imagine he hasn't been cleared. So what happens? Christian's in the ring. Ric Flair comes out to try and talk him out of this. But instead, Ric Flair gives Christian a low blow. And then Randy Orton gives Christian a punt and pins him. Here's the thing. If Christian is still medically disqualified from performing or from wrestling because of concussions, that punt isn't going to happen. Obviously, Randy Orton is a professional. He's not really punting the guy in the head, but mistakes can be made. And if a mistake is made in that situation with a guy who's been medically not cleared, for a company like WWE, that's a potential problem. I don't think that punt would happen unless Christian has been cleared. And this was sort of the same thing that had a lot of people wondering if Edge had been cleared because at SummerSlam last summer, Edge came out and gave, I think it was Elias, a, a spear. And everyone was like, if Edge's neck is so bad that they won't clear him, they would not clear him to do that spear. Same thing with Christian. I think if Christian was not cleared by WWE's doctor, that punt would not have happened. So are we going to see Christian back in a WWE ring? I sure hope so. Also that came out this week, Edge is gone for like eight months with torn biceps. Maybe Christian's going to take his place in this feud with Randy Orton. So New Japan Pro Wrestling returned to action this week. We had shows on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday with the New Japan Cup taking place on Tuesday and Wednesday. Let's just go over the results here. So on Tuesday, Togi Makapi defeated Yoda Suji. Toru Yano defeated Jado. Hiramu Takahashi defeated Tomoaki Hanma in a battle of wrestlers who have recently overcome serious neck injuries. And then in the main event, Tomohiro Ishii defeated El Desperado. Then on night two, on Wednesday, Taiji Ishimori defeats uh, Gabriel Kidd. Kanemura defeats uh, Umura. And then, in a match result which upset me very greatly, Yuji Nagata defeated Minaro Suzuki. Oh! Now, I don't watch pro wrestling like a lot of quote-unquote wrestling journalists do. I don't look at it like it's a choreographed dance or a figure skating competition I'm supposed to put grades on. I get lost in the the fiction of it, right? Like I, I pick my favorites and then I cheer for them. And so I'll always, like I, I have different wrestlers, like instead of just watching every single show, which nobody can do anymore, no wrestling fan can watch every show. One of the things I do is like, okay, I pick out my favorites and I make sure that I watch everything that they do. And one of my favorites is Minaro Suzuki. 
And I was really looking forward to seeing how Minoru Suzuki does in the New Japan Cup. Well, he was eliminated in the first round. But it was a great, like, it was a really fun match to watch that I almost, like, I, it wasn't like I was sitting there crying that Minoru Suzuki got eliminated. But I did kind of go like, ah, ah, like that, that kind of disappointment was, was my range of disappointment felt as a result of Minoru Suzuki getting eliminated. I love the start of the match. The start of the match, it, it just, they started just slapping each other. And then they started just giving each other forearms and then just um, chopping each other, or kicking each other. And, and they must have spent like five, 10 minutes just doing that back and forth to each other before they got into more doing moves and stuff. And that's what I love about, you know, both of these guys, really. Like, you know, Nagata's fun to watch too. And it's like, you're watching two guys, they're in their fifties, but they're just having this hard hitting match. And it's this really sort of believable style. I mean, I guess it's not that believable. Like if you're an, if you're an MMA fan, no, no pro wrestling is believable, but you know what I mean? It's hard hitting. It sort of really kind of draws you in a little bit more than some of the more choreographed styled wrestling does. And, um, but in the end, Yuji Nagata won a, a very hard hitting and fun match and he'll move on to the second round. And that was the semifinal of the night. And then we got a much less serious, uh, bout between Kazuchika Okada and Gato, where Gato, of course, is trying to do everything he can, uh, to not actually engage with Okada, including coming out all bandaged up like he wasn't able to compete. And so that was kind of fun. And so... That was New Japan Pro Wrestling's uh, first two shows of the New Japan Cup. Of course, all empty arena shows now. Although I find because in New Japan, the crowds are generally more silent anyway, it, it, it kind of had less of an impact that there weren't fans there. You still feel it, obviously. You still feel a difference between the wrestling now and the wrestling from the long, long ago in the before time before the pandemic. But it's all a matter of what you're used to, right? And so I'm, we're all starting to get used to the idea of, of not many fans around ringside or no fans around ringside. And it's still enjoyable to watch. I mean, these people that say, oh, I just, I just can't watch empty arena wrestling. I was like, well, I don't like, I get that it, it takes away from it to not have these people live um, reacting with an energy and enthusiasm. I get that it takes away from it, but come on. Like, it's not the difference between being able to watch it and not being able to watch it, or at least it isn't for me. That it is for some people, I find a touch surprising, but what are you going to do? All right, so next week, we continue with first-round matches in the New Japan Cup, and we switch over to the right side of the bracket. So... No second round matches next week, but Tuesday and Wednesday, we get the final two nights of the first round of the 32-man single elimination tournament. So running down the matches for Tuesday, got Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Taichi. That'll be good. I don't know if that's going to main event or if Kota Ibushi versus Zack Sabre Jr. is going to main event. I, I would imagine, like, Kota Ibushi versus Zack Sabre Jr., That'll be an amazing match. There's a lot of history there. Zack Sabre Jr. has sort of had Kota Ibushi's number. 
And I just, dating back to a few years ago when Zack Sabre Jr. won the New Japan Cup, it really felt like that was going to be his beginning of being like a real top star in New Japan Pro Wrestling. But he did seem to kind of take a step back after that. Like he... You know, not not from where he was. He was still a step up from where he was. But I felt like he was going to be more of a perennial IWGP heavyweight title contender after that. And he wasn't really. I thought they told a great story with him that year about how, like, nobody could escape his submissions and his style was just so suited for a tournament like this. Well, we've got, you know, two of the recent New Japan Cup winners here meeting in the first round. So it's not like they do these tournaments with seeding. You know, they have two of the, the past winners here, Kota Ibushi and Zack Sabre Jr. meeting in the first round. So that should be a really interesting match. And that's, of all the first round matches, that's the one that makes you go, yeah, I really don't know who's moving on from that match. But, like we said last week, New Japan will throw in some upsets just to just to keep everyone on on their toes. They don't want anybody coming out with perfect brackets, right? And so Yuji Nagata defeating Minoru Suzuki, that was an upset. It wasn't a like it wasn't an outrageous upset, like this kind of thing that you never saw happening. I'm sure, like if you look over the the first round, okay, that was one of the more closely seated matches between Nagata and Suzuki. You still would have figured Suzuki as the favorite, however. Between Kota Ibushi and Zack Sabre Jr., I don't know who's the favorite. I guess Ibushi. I would put Ibushi as the favorite. But he can't be that much of a, a favorite considering that, you know, Zack Sabre Jr. has already shown he can beat him. So I don't know who's going to win that match, but it should be fun. I really enjoy Zack Sabre Jr.'s style. Um... Like it's just so like it's just because it's so based on submissions, it means that every Zach like this Kota Ibushi match with Zack Sabre Jr. is gonna be totally different from any other Kota Ibushi match that you see all year. Unless he wrestles Zack Sabre Jr. again. Uh in which case it might look similar. Uh but yeah, so those are the two big ones on Tuesday, Tanahashi and Taichi and Kota Ibushi, Zack Sabre Jr. Then we got Taguchi versus Sonata. I'd have to rank Sonata as the heavy favorite there. And then Sho versus Shingo Takagi. I'd have to write uh, Shingo Takagi as the heavy favorite in that match as well. Although, I mean, again, though, you could throw in an upset there. You could have Taguchi score a crazy upset over Sonata or Sho score a crazy victory over Shingo Takagi. And then that leads to, you know, future matches between those two in the future. Could happen. Just saying. Sonata and Takagi, I would rank as the two favorites in in that in those first round matches then on wednesday we got hero yoshi tenzan versus yoshi hashi i would probably i don't know who's the favorite actually between tenzan and yoshi hashi because tenzan obviously he's getting older he doesn't do the g1 and stuff anymore but yoshi hashi is not that highly ranked although he still does do the g1 and you know I guess maybe I'll give it to Yoshihashi because he's a guy who's in his prime, whereas Tenzan is sort of one of the dads, one of the veterans. So maybe I'd put Yoshihashi as the favorite there, but that's I, I could see that one going either way. Then Yo versus Bushi. I'd have to write Bushi off as the favorite there. 
Bushi is another one of mine. Uh, more favorite wrestlers like Minoru Suzuki, where I try to check out all of his matches. But I have a bias to anyone who uses the Poison Mist. Really enjoy the Poison Mist. Um, Satoshi Kojima versus Evil. I would have to rank Evil as the heavy favorite there. Hiroki Goto versus Yujiro Takahashi. I'd have to rank Goto as the heavy favorite, but not by a lot. Uh, but definitely by a bit. Like Takahashi is sort of at Yoshihashi's level. And Hiroki Goto is like one step down from a heavyweight title contender, sort of that level. So Goto, definitely the favorite. I could see them doing an upset there um, if they wanted to as well and have Takahashi pull off the upset. So just looking at the second round matches now. And wait, when are some of these second rounders going to start? Oh, and you know what? We've got shows. We've got a show on June 24th. That's Wednesday. And then they're off again until next Wednesday, July 1st. So the second round begins on the 24th. And so here are the matches. Oh, so we will get the second round matches here next Wednesday. Okay, so second round, left side of the bracket, June 24th. Here we go. Togi Makabe versus Tomohiro Ishii. Anybody can come out of that. Um, I'd pick Ishii probably to come out, but you know, obviously that's, you know, going to be a hard hitting bout between two opponents who know each other very well. Then we got Toru Yano versus Hiramu Takahashi. I really hope Takahashi's going to come away with the win there. Um, I have noticed that wrestling is better when Takahashi is not injured or his promotion is not on hiatus due to pandemic. So then you've got Takahashi going up against Maccabi or Ishii in the third round. And the winner of that going on to the semifinals. So we'll see. We've also got Kazuchika Okada versus Yuji Nagata. And that would have been Okada versus Minoru Suzuki, a match I would have really liked to have seen. But Yuji Nagata defeating Minoru Suzuki. Not saying I'm mad at Nagata or anything. I understand why he won that match just as a Suzuki fan I was upset I was I was upset in storyline I'm not upset in reality I'm upset in storyline and then the winner of Okada and Nagata will meet the winner of Kanemuro and Taiji Ishimori which is uh also taking place in round two I would have to imagine Ishimori is the favorite over Kanemaru but not by a lot. But it really feels like maybe like we're gearing towards Okada and maybe Takahashi in the semifinals. I feel like Takahashi is going to go far. Like, I feel like they put the junior heavyweights in this tournament. Takahashi, obviously, you know, one of the best in the junior heavyweight division. We missed out on the Takahashi... Naito match that we were supposed to get at the anniversary show. So I, I, I feel like Takahashi and Kazuchika Okada is a very plausible semifinal match to come out of the left side of the, of the brackets. Uh, on the right side of the brackets, we haven't even done the first round, so probably a little bit too early to say. But when we are back here and do this show next weekend... We're going to know far. Well, we're going to know some people that are in the quarterfinals and, 
everything's going to be fleshed out a little bit more. We'll be down to how many wrestlers at that point? We'll be down to like 12 wrestlers left by the time we do this show next week. So we'll have a much better idea of who we think could meet in the finals and who we think could win it all and move on to Dominion to challenge Tetsuya Naito. Really quickly, I don't want to talk about NXT too much on this show, but there was a segment on NXT that I feel is worth talking about. So we've got a triple threat match coming up next week. Actually, next week is kind of a good show. So next week, we've got a triple threat match with Finn Balor and Johnny Gargano challenging NXT North American champion Keith Lee in a triple threat match for the title. And the winner of that match is going to take the NXT North American Championship and go challenge NXT champion Adam Cole on July 8th. And that match is going to go up against the second night of AEW's Fighter Fest. And I almost wonder if maybe NXT changed course at like somewhere between this, last week's episode and this week's episode, because last week's episode ends with Scarlett Bordeaux sort of putting a uh, hourglass thing down by Adam Cole, kind of saying your time's running out. So everybody's saying, okay, Adam Cole versus Karrion Cross. That's the next big NXT championship match. But now they're planning this match two weeks out for the NXT championship, the NXT champion versus the North American champion. And Karrion Cross is not involved. And then Bronson Reed comes out, wins a match and challenges Karrion Cross to a match next week. So it makes me wonder like, Ooh, did they change something? Because it seemed like they had a direction they were going with Cross versus Adam Cole. And then they just went a different direction. And I think this is interesting because Adam Cole's uh, title reign now is up over a year. And they're losing in the ratings to AEW. Uh, and I, I think it's, you know, significant that he's been the, the champion this whole time. And not that Adam Cole is to blame for them losing in the ratings, but it's just, you know, if you're down in the, in the ratings, one thing to pop a rating is put the belt on somebody new and take your program a new direction. So I kind of wonder if, if, if we're gearing up for the end of Adam Cole's title reign. I have no idea. This could just be another way to build up Adam Cole until he takes on Karrion Cross. And is Karrion Cross going to be a baby face? Because if it's Cross versus Cole, that's, you know, that's two heels. Obviously, you can do it. But that happens far less often than babyface versus heel or babyface versus babyface. Heel versus heel is pretty rare, especially like in a top, top storyline. So it feels like, well, Cross would have to go babyface because it doesn't seem like Adam Cole would. Or maybe Adam Cole's not going to be the NXT champion when Cross challenges for it. Maybe that's going to be Keith Lee, Johnny Gargano, or Finn Balor. I have no idea if Finn Balor is heel or babyface at this point because I think he's playing a heel. 
but I don't like, I guess, I don't know. Because he was a heel, he turned on Johnny Gargano. Now, of course, Johnny Gargano's heel as well. Then he goes to NXT UK and everybody cheers him. So it, I'm not overly sure if he's face or heel. And also we've got Keith Lee as the, the NXT North American champion. And a lot of people have said, like, remember the Survivor Series came around and Keith Lee, you know, because NXT was involved in some of the matches and Keith Lee looked like this big, you know, up and coming star for the NXT brand. And it really felt like after Survivor Series where Keith Lee had gotten the star treatment on the main roster and from the fans on the main roster that it was time to really shoot Keith Lee to the moon. And they haven't really shot him to the moon. He's been kind of up in the air, but not to the moon. Not that far. If he won the world title, I would consider that a moonshot. We could just be two weeks away from that. If he wins the match next week, then goes on to beat Adam Cole two weeks from now, and what a rate... I. Would NXT not defeat AEW in the ratings if they had Keith Lee versus Adam Cole for the championship and the real believable idea that Keith Lee could walk away with the NXT championship? It feels like Keith Lee is the baby face they need to build NXT around, especially now that Matt Riddle's gone. Why not just push that guy to the moon? Does anybody disagree that Keith Lee is a main event quality guy. He's a main event quality guy. Everybody loves Keith Lee. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are Keith Lee haters out there, but I've never met one. It seems like a very large percentage of people who witness Keith Lee are like, yeah, that guy's really good. So are we only two weeks away from Keith Lee being the NXT champion? Or do they want to put that title on Finn Balor, a guy who's had success on the main roster? But one trend that has really started in NXT that I think is concerning to some, but this idea of main roster stars coming to NXT. We had Sasha Banks and Bayley this week. We had Charlotte Flair every week since WrestleMania. Feels like we might not go any weeks without main roster wrestlers coming on to NXT. And whether that's good or bad sort of depends on what your opinion of NXT is or and WWE's main roster. But that's one thing that's really got me interested in NXT in the, the show that happened this week is, is I've been waiting for Keith Lee to be put in a position that I think they might be possibly gearing him up for. And I don't know. I have no idea. He could easily lose this match next week. I could see anybody from that triple threat going on to face Adam Cole. And I could see Adam Cole beating anyone from that triple threat if they win. Like, I, I really don't know who is going to come out of this two-week period as the NXT champion. It could be any one of the four. Maybe not Gargano. I feel like I feel like the odds of Gargano coming away from July 8th as the NXT champion are probably pretty slim. But it's realistically possible with Finn Balor. It's realistically possible with Keith Lee. And it's realistically possible that Adam Cole would continue to be the NXT champion. I don't know. I, I'm, 
I mean, I guess Adam Cole retaining and then going into a feud with Karrion Cross is probably the most likely thing to happen, but I wouldn't, you know, I don't know how likely it is. I don't even know if I would rank it as over 50% likely that he comes out of it with the title still. I could easily go to Keith Lee. could easily go to Finn Balor. Not as easily it could go to Johnny Gargano. But that's the title picture going on in NXT. And I thought it was interesting enough to talk about this week. All right, so let's talk about the television ratings this week for all the major promotions. And we'll start off the ratings for SmackDown just came in. And they did a 2.089 million viewers. So up over 2 million viewers for the fourth week out of five. They briefly dipped below 2 million viewers on the June 5th episode. But uh, slight uptick for this Friday's episode, which is up from 2.036 million viewers the week before. And SmackDown continues to do a 0.50 in the key demo. So SmackDown continuing to be the most watched wrestling program in the United States. But it got a little closer this week because Raw really jumped up in the ratings from where it had been. So leading up to this week's Raw, uh, the show had been doing like 1.7 million viewers. 1.73 million viewers hovering around and then hovering around a 0.5 in the key demo as well. This week, big uptick, 200,000 more viewers than normal for Bruce Pritchard's first foray into taking over the Raw show as well. So it does 1.940 million viewers and a 0.54 in the key demo. So Raw actually wins in the key demo this week in terms of the most watched wrestling program in the United States. So all of a sudden it got a lot closer. Like Bruce Pritchard coming in definitely showed fans that things are going to be different. And clearly many of those 200,000 fans had given up on what Paul Heyman was doing on raw and tuned in to see what direction Bruce Pritchard would take it. And as, as you know, like, I've followed Paul Heyman's his whole Paul Heyman his whole career. And I like the way that he books. I like the way I like the stories that he tells. But I don't think anybody can deny something just wasn't working with Raw. It was hard to watch. And I said this last week, it felt like it it felt like what I'm sure it absolutely was and it felt like Paul Heyman was trying to do his show the way he wanted to do it, but Vince McMahon kept uh inserting himself and changing things. That's what it felt like, and I think that's what it was. Raw this week felt like a much more cohesive show. Um, A a show where all the cooks were working with the same ingredients, trying to create the same food. Like it, It didn't feel like there was too many cooks in the kitchen like Raw had been feeling leading up to this. And it was very much a WWE show. And again, we, we... we talked about the differences in booking between Paul Heyman, Vince McMahon, friggin' Court Bauer, Impact, everyone last week. D- Vince McMahon loves larger-than-life characters, large superstars, storylines, shorter matches. And that's what we got on Raw this week. And 
they popped a rating. And less than uh, less than a hundred thousand fans away from SmackDown in terms of total viewers, and they led this week in the key demo. So I think WWE is going to be happy with the first rating outside of the Paul Heyman era, the first rating in the Bruce Pritchard era. All right, so that's that. That was the main roster war for the week, and then we go to the Wednesday night war, which was very close this week because NXT did a big number or a big number for them. They did the best number that they've done uh, in over a month, probably longer. But they did 746,000 viewers and 0.20 in the key demo. So that's up uh, the week before they did 673,000 viewers. The week before, 715,000 viewers. On May 20th, they had done as low as 592,000 viewers. So NXT doing one of their better ratings in a while. And I'm, I'm certain there will be people there that'll credit Sasha Banks and Bailey appearing on the show for it. Whether or not that's true, who knows. But they still did fall short to AEW on Wednesday night, which did 772,000 viewers and a 0.28 in the key demo. That's their best number since the May 27th episode, which was their first show uh, after a pay-per-view, which did 827,000 viewers and 0.32 in a key demo. So once again, AEW taking the Wednesday Night War. SmackDown is the most watched program in the United States, but WWE Raw, the most watched program in the key demo, which is 18 to 49 year olds. And that group is considered very important to advertisers. And that's why we call it the key demo. I did want to talk a little bit about Edge versus Randy Orton at Backlash. Now, admittedly, I didn't think Backlash would like Backlash. I had trouble maintaining my interest in Backlash until we got to the main event. And I did find what they did for the main event really interesting. And so we were talking about, well, what are they going to do? Like, it's got to become some some kind of swerve, right? Like, I mean, they can't just advertise that something is going to be the greatest match of all time. And that, like, what? You know, <laughs> right? It's got to be some kind of swerve. They can't actually do the greatest match of all time. But when they started doing the match, I figured out what they meant. And I figured out what they were thinking in this idea. And the reason they were doing the greatest wrestling match ever is because they were filming it without an audience. And this is quite possibly the only chance they're going to get to do something like that. So they could refilm parts or retape parts that didn't look good. They can pipe in crowd noise to get the exact kind of crowd noise that the greatest wrestling match of all time would have. They had Howard Finkel giving the introductions and they had the Madison Square Garden microphone come down. So they even pretended like they were in Madison Square Garden. And I figured out what they meant. They did a movie about what the greatest wrestling match would look like if you scripted it word for word and move for move, including crowd reactions. And that's what it was. And so it wasn't a, like, it wasn't a wrestling match in that, like most wrestling uh, matches are like live performances, right? Like it's, this is a stage performance. But what WWE has had to do in the pandemic era is 
instead of doing stage performances, they're filming movies. Their matches are movies instead of stage performances. So this is sort of, this was like their unique opportunity to film a match like it was a movie. And so you can do it so that there's no errors. Everything looks good. And the crowd's going to react exactly how you want them to. Because you're just going to pipe in the noise you want at any given situation. And I thought that was very creative. Like, I I spent this whole buildup not knowing what they could have could possibly have been thinking. And the, the second I heard the ring introductions, I realized what they were going to do. And why they were calling it the greatest wrestling match of all time. Now, was it the greatest wrestling match of all time? That's all subjective. You can't do that stuff. Because the greatest wrestling match of all time is going to take you like on an emotional journey. Right? Like Bret Hart versus Steve Austin at WrestleMania 13 took you on an emotional journey. Right? Austin never gave up. And so you're, you're, you're following along like with the characters. But that's not what this was. This was move for move, what would be the greatest wrestling match of all time if you were to script it move for move line for line word for word and you might not agree with it i'm not entirely sure i agree with it either but i thought it was creative and i do think it'll go down as one of the most interesting pro wrestling matches of all time because it'll have such a backstory to it because when people talk about randy orton versus edge at backlash 2020 they'll say well, they couldn't have crowds at the time because there was a pandemic going on, right? Like, you, you almost forget when people look back at WrestleMania 36 or this whole period in wrestling, like every parent that shows their child this is going to have to explain what was going on in the world. And like the Boneyard match, like the Firefly Funhouse match, they took this unique scenario and did something that they could only do within the confines of the world that we are currently living in, within this window of a global pandemic era, the likes of which hasn't been seen in 102 years. I think you got to give them props for creativity. And now we'll see where it goes. Is Randy Orton going to move on to this storyline with Christian? And God, like Randy Orton, say whatever you want about Randy Orton. Say whatever you want about him as a performer or some things that he has said while streaming Call of Duty or whatever. He's a really good wrestler. And he's a really serious and intense promo. When he talks, I really do believe he wants to punt somebody in the head. And I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes moving forward. But that's where we're going to end it off for this week. Uh, next week is going to be the last week before we move into the two-week Fighter Fest. So we're going to talk all about Fighter Fest next week. As I said before, we're going to be down to 12 competitors left in the New Japan Cup. We're going to talk all about the New Japan Cup as well. So thank you very much, everyone, for continuing to support this show. Check out SpoilerFreeWrestling.com. I've been your host, Ian Carey. <laughs>